This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This is Talking Gardens, and I'm Stephanie Mann, editor of Gardens Illustrated. Today, my guest is Isabel Bannerman, author of several books, including The Star Nose Mole and Scent Magic, and one half of the partnership Bannerman designed with her husband, Julian. They're best known for their work at Arundel Castle, working with King Charles at his garden at Highgrove, and making their own beautiful garden at Hannam Court. Isabel, welcome to Talking Gardens. Thank you. So we're here to talk about your dream garden. If you could have a fantasy place, an ideal landscape, you know, the, the the garden of your dreams, what would be the first thing that springs to mind that you would have to have in that space? <laughs> well, I think it's all about the place and the geography and the geology and the makeup of the landscape that the garden is going to be set in. And for me... I think I've never had like a stream or a river, which is, or a moated house. It's always a big fantasy. So I think it's, in my dream, it's kind of chalky, downland, woodland with a stream and lots of sunny glades and woodland. So it's a sort of lost domain. It's like the perfect setting for yeah. your dream garden, almost. You know the yeah. the imaginary lost landscape where it would be where it would be, uh, rather than the garden itself. Yeah, I mean the garden itself obviously would have my favourite things in it, like irises and scented things. And I don't know, but I've done. You know, I've, I've achieved quite a lot of that. So I think the the dream thing that I probably never get is this idea of water and less gardening probably actually and wildflowers and meadows and stuff. Do you find that that's happening, you know, that the longer you're a designer, the more spaces that you make and for yourself as well, that you are drawn more to that more natural landscape, wilder side of things? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's it's a sort of yeah, the simplification, you know, when you're, you're young and you love always very, very petaled, multi layered peonies and roses and things and then somehow the more you live with them the more interesting the species and the simple ones the single flowers become I don't know it's just something I've been thinking about quite a lot recently you get less sort of seduced by and I mean obviously that's the way everything's going at the moment slightly too is everyone's appreciating buttercups and violence and things anyway more than realising that they're disappearing and stuff. Yeah, a sense of um, the beauty and the simplicity of 
of things and uh, yes taking a step back maybe from the more could I use the word processed <laughs> bread <laughs> like you know, food yeah, yeah. <laughs> well I suppose we're all so spoiled aren't we with garden centres absolutely full of lush flowering gorgeous lupins that you can't resist from west country lupins and I'm a sucker uh, totally for all that kind of thing but if you sit down and think about it you kind of it's less satisfying than tree planting, which is the obviously the greatest thing anyone ever does. Most rewarding. You plant trees for your grandchildren, they say. <laughs> never well, now them. it's like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I have seen trees, you know, mature. And my da- I can remember my dad planting trees in the village and um, I've been back to see them and they're huge and fabulous. And that's just amazing. And this dream setting of yours I want to know a little bit more about it so you mentioned some water running through it and some trees a sort of woodland setting well my husband I very Julian is very um, disappointed in the trees on this property so we moved here four years ago to South Somerset to Ashington Manor and it was all it had been empty for 10 years and very very neglected which is what we like but it's in a very flat landscape. It's on the edge of the Somerset Levels. And because it had been a farm slightly, it hasn't got great trees. That's what we both hanker after. And it's also very flat. We both hanker after a bank. Julian says, I haven't got a bank with primroses on it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the dream is still out there somewhere. And in my case, I think probably has two. It's Fabulous trees, oaks and elms, which I remember from my childhood, all coming down when I was about 10. Because of Dutch Elm disease. Yeah. So there were two huge witch elms at the end of our garden when I was a child. And the thing about them, elms are just taller than anything. And we just, there's nothing on the landscape like that now. And so that diminishes, diminished our whole kind of concept of scale, I think, in some ways. So that would be in my dream, definitely. There's a painter called Frank Brangwen who paints amazing, painted in the late 19th century. Elms in flat country like around here. Everything in this house, because we had to remake this house in some ways, was made of elm. All the floorboards and the joists and everything. So... It's quite interesting, that whole kind of dynamic of locality and things like that. I was very excited when we got here because I discovered that they grow Ribena, black currants, all underneath Ham Hill, which is where the stone was very gingery stone we have. I love limestone. And I think all that's very important in a garden because it's the backdrop, you know, whether it's the house or the paths or the steps or the... It's interesting, isn't it, that you you start to focus uh, the longer you garden than on the topography. It's not just about, you know, when you start out, it's all about having to have moist, well-drained soil. It seems that you need for absolutely everything, according to the RHS books. Yeah, <laughs> and that impossible combination. Exactly. Um, uh, but I think maybe the longer you garden, then you do start to look at, yes, the surrounding landscape and the elements that are in it, what's the geology of the site, what the topography of the site is, and, and start to see how that's influencing you know, the the plants that are naturally, naturally growing around growing. you. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and then letting, hence your choices as well. Letting that influence you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I suppose making, because we're making other people's gardens, that's 
always a priority, thinking about like that, wherever you are, and learning. I love learning about different places and how they how they respond to, you know, where the old man's beard grows or or, or you suddenly see some, some rhododendrons or some azaleas and you go, ah, oh, yeah. I mean, just up the hill here on the way to Yeovil is they've suddenly got blue hydrangeas and we're all feeling very jealous, but they've just got a bit of green sand. It makes such a difference. Yeah, I'm not, but I'm, that's not my dream garden, actually. <laughs> yeah. Rhododendron and azaleas, fascinating as they are. But they smell very different. That's one of the things I realised thinking about smell a lot is that different, terro- what do we call it in winemaking? Terroir. Terroir, terroir. yes. <laughs> um, is, has a different smell. I uh, remember we worked on a garden in Hampshire and it had fabulous bluebells and lily of the valley and azaleas. I love the smell of that. What is the wild azalea called that's orange and it's really stinky? And you just realise that the whole acidity of the place is, it gives you a completely different feeling, subconsciously even. So here we're muddy, near Mudford and flat, but very rich, which is nice. We have got the deep soil, deep well-draining soil. Yeah, and and how has that influenced then? Are you growing different things here to what you would have grown in previous gardens? Well, we're growing all our old favourites. So we love roses, especially rambling ones, you know, that are enormous and scented like rambling rector. And the garland is Julian's favourite at the moment because it's grown really fast. So I recommend if you want to cover a wall, it took about three years to get to the eaves. And I don't mind things that don't flower for very long. I like that sort of moment of excitement. It's like the irises are like that, or wisteria, something like that. It's just, you have those weeks where, when you eat asparagus and it's a joy and then it's gone and then you have to look forward to it again. Yeah. It's back to that species thing again, isn't it? It's, mm. Yeah, just those amazing highlights of the year as opposed to, let's say, constantly repeat flowering. Yeah. yeah having yeah, something to look forward to at different points. Floribunda carpet roses or whatever. I suppose we're very spoiled we get bored, don't we? And if you ate broad beans every day of the year, you'd think they were really boring. <laughs> <laughs> they just become the normal thing. So we've talked about the setting of your dream garden. What else do you feel that your fantasy garden would have to have? What else is important to you uh, in terms of the kind of garden that you want to have? Well, I'm very big on this thing about it should be cosy. You know, it should be a place obviously a retreat and kind of a republic from the world. So sitting places are very important in my book. And also they give you, I remember we had an argument with Andrew Lloyd Webber about how many seats he had in his garden. And he said, oh, well, I never have time to sit down. And we said, but that's not the point. The idea is that you could and they just make a nice full stop. So I think it all starts with that kind of eating out, drinking in the evening when your labours are done. And here we were really lucky. There's a this wisteria corner, which is was absolutely... We all made a beeline for it the moment we got here because the rest was just a field. So that's very important. And with that, of course, goes 
the scented shrubs, the Daphne, the wisteria, the buffalo currant I'm very keen on. Do you know that? It's um, Ribes odorata, and it's got funny little yellow flowers. Like a lot of scented things, it's not very showy, but it it just suddenly starts emanating the smell of sort of hot cross buns, sort of April time, spicy, yeah, which is really adorable. Or like in September, um, the early Agnes does the same thing. Because very few things actually sort of scent the wind, and most of them are shrubs. Um, and we're very keen on shrubs. That's We like them in our borders as well. So borders is a funny old word because it's very unfashionable at the moment, isn't it? But I think it's still it's still borders is still what we do, but they're very disrupted. We like them to be kind of exploding out of their confines and full of wavy things that you know are in the wrong order. I think you know I hate any kind of dogma about what you should like or how you should do things. They must be planted in blocks and it must be <laughs> low at the front and high at the back. back. Yeah. <laughs> so, right, let's have the philictrum at the front. And obviously you can't lose stuff at the back. Maybe just higher at the back. Because <laughs> it, it's it's obviously the, the trend at the moment is very much that naturalistic sort of hangover from the new perennial movement of, you know, more like large organic shaped island beds almost. Mm. Uh, or just a huge expanse of planting with paths cut through it rather than beds or borders, you know, that traditional path down in the middle of double borders, as yeah. you guys still Well, we're quite, quite old-fashioned like that. We quite <laughs> like the path. And, the, yeah, I mean, the perennial stuff, you know, some of it's absolutely amazing, and I'm always fascinated because it's such a different way of looking at things from the way I look at things. I do think it's immensely hard work. I think that often gets forgotten that, you know, you get some cooch in those giant borders and you're in trouble. And I, yeah, so I like to mix it all up and I think it's not naturalistic. I mean, none of it is natural. Yes, <laughs> good point. <laughs> yes, nothing looks nothing looks quite like that. <laughs> it's in, They always say inspired by yeah. uh, nature. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, you mentioned shrubs and I, I do think obviously it, it feels like they've fallen out of favour for quite a long time because of this, you know, grasses and perennials, you know, uh, well, they're much harder schemes. to make. You know, you've got to do, you've got to take cuttings and get grow them on quite a long time before they're worth selling, and they're more expensive, I suppose, yeah. as well. They're quite an outlay, and, and maybe as well for people with smaller gardens, they don't have as much room and, and are afraid of pruning. I think this can be oh, yeah. part of the problem as well. Is that people are slightly scared of what to do if I make. The cut wrong, I'll ruin the shrub. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all that terrifying pruning instructions. But then, uh, then people are quite violent sometimes as well. Aren't they? But would you say, you know, there is a value to, you know, it's definitely worth re-examining shrubs now for people. You, you said you love, you know, the flowering scented ones in particular. Yeah, well, we're both obsessed by Philadelphus and lilac, so... Philadelphus coronarius being the old-fashioned syringa, people used to call it. And it's just got such an extraordinary mock orange smell. There's really nothing like it. And it's they're all very accommodating. And there are little ones that we use in borders like mantodermine, which is still very scented. And it's like a white blob. It's really useful over the edge of the 
the famous straight line paths. <laughs> we once had a client who said, I, I see you like right angles, but that's all in the plan. And then the point is that the whole thing erupts into its own crazy megalomania. Softens all of those hard edges. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you don't ever get to see them really, except when you tidy up. And the other thing I have, well, particularly having lived in Cornwall, we lived in Cornwall for seven, eight years and gardened and it was fantastic. But you couldn't begin to do a perennial meadow in that because it's all soggy and it doesn't get frosted and it doesn't look amazing in winter. It looks black and horrible. So I think it's all horses for courses, isn't it? I just grow the things I like and I think that tends to be cottagey and smelly. It tends to be pinks and matiola, you know, the... Night scented, I love night scented stock, and the other one, the perennial stocks, you know, the white ones and the purple ones. Which, funny enough, yeah, they were growing in this. I was going to read to you from about influences. I wrote a bit about this tiny garden on this cliff in Ronda in Spain, down south in Andalusia. And it goes like this. There was a garden we found in Ronda in Spain on our first holiday together in spring 1988. We took cheap flights to Malaga and hired a Fiat Panda for a week for £50 and drove around Andalusia. There were widows in black poking at donkeys and little piles of burning rubbish, which you also find in India. It was enchanting. In Ronda, we looked down at the 400-foot, 120-metre El Chajo Gorge, from the elongated 18th century bridge, at circling raptors as the vaporous wafts of the town sewage floated up from the river below. But every evening we kept watching two brothers tending their small patch perched on the cliff about halfway down. We could see artichokes amongst the tomato tins full of plants and trees clinging to the whitewashed house. Little beds of leafy greens ringed about with limey paths, mammoth catering tins printed with colourful pictures of tomatoes and peppers used as containers. Eventually, we found a way down the side of the precipice, below the houses that are now expensive hotels and restaurants, but then were mostly empty, strung out along the cliff's edge, and we got all the way to their garden, teetering vertiginously with the great river below and the great bridge above. We found them asleep among their plants, it being the afternoon. But having been woken up by such unlikely intruders, they showed us every last tomato and blade of coriander in their precipitous Eden. I think that's a kind of ancient, ancient, the desire to grow things, the need to grow things, to eat and just for pleasure. It's a sort of peasanty world that I appreciate and try to cling on to in this fast world, moving world that we live in now. And that's the kind of dream that you wouldn't have to answer your phone or have one. <laughs> and you could just so your dream on. garden would be completely cut off from the outside <laughs> world. On the edge of a cliff, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> so it would be very hard for people to get to you. You could fall asleep like those two yeah. among your plants. That sounds like quite lovely. Such an honest sleep, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so Isabel, is there anywhere else that particularly inspired you? perhaps on your travels, that you feel you'd want a little touch of that, a little element of that in your dream garden? Well, funnily enough, actually, yeah, no, I haven't mentioned Nympha, 
which is always a big pilgrimage we wanted to make. It's like the sort of abandoned village near Rome, isn't yeah. that right? Where it's all sort of covered in roses and very romantic. Exactly. And it's got the gin-like stream running through these ruined buildings and bridges. And then everything is cloaked in rambling roses. And we did finally get there about four years ago. And we were very lucky and it was absolutely fantastic. But it is it has the problem that so many places have now so just too many people go there and the footfall is actually killing the trees and so they're doing weird things to stop people walking around so they've now kind of made flower beds so that either side of the path so you can't wander off the paths which is kind of sensible but I think it looks a bit strange and the one we haven't got to is Giverny and I wrote this in my book and um, some reviewer or someone said, well, stop moaning and just get there. <laughs> and I was slightly moaning by saying the trouble is that you get more and more excited about you if you don't go somewhere and then you, you end up being disappointed because your expectations are so phenomenal. But I do love the... I, I mean, I have books and books on Juvenile and I'm always trying to... My vegetable gardens are meant to look like that, you know. It would be heaven to go there. But it would also be heaven to go back in time, I thought. I've been reading William Robinson, the great 19th century wilding originator, who's very funny. He's very acerbic Irishman. And um, I never know how to pronounce it. His garden at Grave Tie. I mean, it's still fantastic, and I have been there. Yeah, it's now a hotel yeah. in Sussex. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyone can go there, yeah. and um, and they do it beautifully. But something like that would be amazing to go back in time, see, see it in its heyday. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. So you'd like to wander around Giverny, I hope I've said that correctly, um, with Monet painting, yeah, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> or go back to Nympha, you know, when, when they were struggling with it. So yeah, or starting. when they, you know, the roses had just started to come good, maybe. And yeah. It's the dream of, I believe it was an Englishwoman. Yeah, Howard. Because that's a very interesting point, actually, is this whole thing about how gardens change all the time exponentially and I don't think you can't you know and Dixter has taken the view that you can't keep it in a, in a moment quite rightly it's all about just going on experimenting and Sissinghurst is nothing like the kind of humble thing that it was so I suppose the time travel thing would be such a bonus to see see that because things just aren't the same and, and they aren't the same from year to year my garden is I'm totally different all the time, and I love that. But you also regret it because you think, oh, God, the year the Ancusas were really good. That <laughs> you should have been here last week, isn't that the fact? <laughs> Are there other places that you've been or, or inspired by, influenced by other gardens that, 
you feel you might want a little bit of the essence of or the atmosphere of for your dream garden? There are the sort of big numbers, you know, the the kind of Rousham, Studley Royal, those kind of things that you learned about when you were first really interested. And, you know, I always love going to Rousham. It's enchanting. And then there are the kind of familiar, friendly ones like Charleston. And my favourite one at the moment is my friend Louise Dowding has a garden about five miles away from here. It's called Yew Tree Farm, and she opens for the NGS and things. And it, what's so special about it, it's it's in the town of Moortock. It's behind the house on the street. And I think it was a farm, so it has an orchard, and it has a kind of tumbly-down farmyard with still concrete broken up or breaking up. And they have pigs and chickens and they grow vegetables. And then near the house, Louise, who's really a sculptress, has grown her... She's grown... They've done it for 26 years and they they absolutely love it. They're really, really proper gardeners. And she just started clipping all this. She had box edging, really, and balls and things. And then she started clipping it and she just got really into it. And so she makes these amazing kind of Peter Randall Page kind of sculptural seeds almost and strange swirly shapes and things and she keeps it all very very healthy with neem oil and I just couldn't believe the excitement when I first went there because it's a mixture of this quite controlling manicness but then it's also a lot of kind of gravel and seedlings weedlings self-sowing she has this amazing ligustrum lucidum it's called which is an umble that has just taken over a whole section of the garden and she lets that happen, you know, and it's and then it changes every year slightly. Then one year the eryngiums come up more or the poppies or and that's probably the most difficult kind of gardening, isn't it? That happenstance thing where it's or it looks spontaneous. Yeah. Well it is spontaneous, but it's allowed its head to sort of do what it wishes and then it's Sort of quite different every year, almost. Isn't very it? different, yeah. And I, and yeah. It's, so it's very random, but it's also, I think you have to be. It's like you could not design that for someone. You've either got someone there who's who's editing all the time and just sort of and encouraging the things they want. And Sarah Price does that. It, it, she manages to, to kind of design it. But I guess for long term, it's you've got to be you've got to be there daily interested in haven't you yeah (laughs) but you talk about it would be difficult to design that in your work have you found what what is the most or what are some of the most sort of challenging elements do you think of 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 the projects that you do uh well it is all to do with the, the looking after it afterwards so you have to have that in mind all the time. How is it going to work? How are they going to cope? Which tends to make you go back to the familiar things that work, like, you know, Japanese and enemies or something that's totally reliable. I suppose it, it's there's a, a difference between, let's say, the stumpery that you made for King Charles at Highgrove, where you know there's going to be gardeners there tending it beautifully, and, and maybe... Uh, a public realm project mm-hmm. um, like I believe that you were involved in a garden 
a grand zero. Oh, yeah. That was, yeah. So that proved very difficult uh, in terms of maintenance. Yeah. And actually also getting the plants was totally different in America. And we went because we wanted to do it with you, which, I mean, we always loved to use kind of big domes and blocks of you because there's something sort of very grounding and ancient feeling about it and just gives you a lot of age and kind of solidity. Finding nice bits of you in the States was very difficult. But we're doing a, a modern house, a new build at the moment, which is a really interesting challenge and we're really enjoying it. And that's much more kind of, there's a wonderful American designer called Dan Kiley and it works with, it's more trees and grass and shrubs again. And I think that one of the beauties of that actually is it is quite easy to look after, I think. Whereas, you know, growing tiny things that are delicious for cutting is is a whole art in itself, isn't it? Yeah. And again, something that's quite big right now is people wanting cutting, cutting gardens yeah. and, and, and even or cutting beds within a garden yeah. to have uh, bring stuff into the house. But that's great. I think that's really good. It's because I love flowers and I love bringing them into the house. But it does require. It's better than vegetables. I'm no good at vegetables. I think they're just so difficult. There's <laughs> always something trying to eat them before you do. <laughs> <laughs> so annual flowers. Are, I, I, that's what's going in the vegetable garden this year. I see. <laughs> And then at the opposite end of the scale, you're just showing some of the the fruit trees that you've planted. You know, letting the the grass grow along underneath, the sort of that more meadow feeling. <laughs> Do you feel that's maybe the way that you can manage to have edibles without having to tend them so closely? <laughs> is that sort of long range fruit growing? Yeah, but then you've got to make jam or something. I think um, <laughs> <laughs> I got all these plums last year, and I just. You know, they all come in one week and then you don't know what to do with them. But I I just love the trees. I love fruit trees very much. You know, the blossom is so pretty yeah. right now. And you have some lovely espaliered ones as well. You know, they have to yeah. give some structure. They need a bit of looking after. <laughs> <laughs> More pruning. <laughs> yeah. Things are very high maintenance things going on here. And yet the, the need to sort of want to sit down and relax in a garden. But speaking of that, sort of structural element. What else do you think that you would have to include in your dream garden? Is there an idea of, you know, a, a building or features, elements maybe, that you would want to include? Do you know what the most important thing is a greenhouse? I remember Bob Plagiu saying that on Gardens Question Time years and years ago. And he said, even if you have a small one, it'll really cheer you up in winter. And he's so right. It's just... I mean, we like building buildings and funny summer houses and harbours and stuff and crazy things. But actually, we got this Kida polytunnel when we came here, and it's fantastic. And it's just a really nice place to go off and disappear and potter about. So I think, yeah, the dream garden would have to have some glass or, or a good polytunnel. Yeah, somewhere to get down and do your cutting, sow your yeah, seeds, sow your grow seeds. things on. Yeah. Of course, you, you're known for those sort of beautiful acorn-topped yeah. uh, pillars, you know, gorgeous big chunks of oak 
that have been carved to, to look like temples, you know, like we see at Arundel. And I've seen here at your, your own garden, you have, you know, sort of gateposts in that way. Mm-hmm. It almost looks like stone and yet it's made from wood. You know, what what is it that attracts you to that sort of style that that's sort of become your signature? Well, it started as, as a cheapskate way of making a temple for the Prince of Wales. So I know what we had this model. We've got a it's a cork model that we bought in Italy in a car park of a it's called Agrigento Temple in Sicily actually. And you know, they used to bring them back they're very fine ones they had made in the for the Grand Tour. And there's lots in the John Soane Museum. And they're really lovely things. And then this was just a cheap one. And we were looking at it and we we're saying, well, we could do that with chunks of wood. And then we discovered about green oak, which is really oak that's just been cut down. And it's still very carvable then. It gets harder as it seasons. And it just seemed like quite a good economic way of doing things. And then, you know, we liked it so much because it's much gentler. It doesn't have that pomposity that it would if it was in stone. And it settles down, it cracks and it moves and it gets mossy and I think Hygo is probably in a terrible way now. But, I mean, they do have, and they did have them in the 18th century. You know, Merlin's Cave was made by William Kent. And there were loads of thatched buildings in the 19th century too. So we went off down this funny old route of baking root houses and stumperies and working in wood. And it's just incredibly satisfying and quite good value. (laughs) What else would you say are the sort of those signature elements of your work that you do? Or have you found that it's changed quite a lot over the years? I don't know. For us, it's always, you know, everything is a new problem to solve, a new uh, context, all that stuff. But I suppose other people looking at it see similarities over and over, which is, uh, you know, what people call romantic slightly sort of shabby I mean not you know we're not into manicured anything I don't think too much although we do like straight lines <laughs> a fullness yeah abundance and generosity of smell colour we absolutely love colour except in leaves not very keen on purple leaves well, Isabel so far you've told us that your dream garden would be set in the surroundings with a chalk woodland stream, that it would be cosy with places to sit and entertain friends and just relax and enjoy it. It would have some of that sense of being cut off from the world of that little garden in Rondo that you saw on the edge of the cliffs. It would be full of scented plants and shrubs and some elm trees. (laughs) If you were going to share this garden with somebody or have somebody as your head gardener or your own designer, who would you have in your dream garden? Well, I think an amazing gardener retired called Sue Dickinson, who used to work at Ethrop for Lord Rothschild. And she's always very kind to us because we were doing a little bit of work there and always giving us plants and advice. And she's just an incredible grower, which I don't, know that either of us are and Julian is better than me but someone like that or um, you know the dream Fergus Garrett of Dixter 
head gardener there would be, you know, just amazing to do those things that you don't quite manage yourself. That would be a dream. And also just to have a bit more time to do it myself would be good. (laughs) So not necessarily to have a head gardener, but just maybe someone to do the other things in life so that you can do the gardening. (laughs) Exactly, a wife. (laughs) But it is nice to share it with lots of people as well. I think I remember when we first opened Hannah, it was so exciting to, because you feel a bit crazed when you're just doing it all for just this sort of, because we are quite mad. And then when you open it to people and they're so sweet, I mean, almost all gardeners are just, I think they're the best people and they they just long to talk about it and, um, and they're so congratulatory and encouraging and and then they tell you funny stories about how they, the smell of box reminds them of their childhood and, you know. So it's become rather complicated opening the garden. So I don't think we do it very often, but it's really, really lovely to share and if there was something that you would ban from your dream garden that you would (laughs) you would love to get rid of that you would just you just can't stand it and you you would love to banish it forever from your garden oh what depresses me in our garden as we have this like everybody you know bit around the back of the polytunnel which is full of plastic tubs and trays and old fleece and netting and it's all made of unrenewable crap and I hate that and I hate that about the industry. I think it's really got to get it act together about not using all these pots and one-time stuff uh, and always labels. I'm always picking up these blooming labels with pictures of flowers on them. <laughs> so yeah, my dream garden would have nothing but, you know, everything I suppose would be cuttings from friends and Homemade, home seed grown and bare root perennials and yeah. pots made out of newspaper for yeah. your blue <laughs> rolls. <laughs> it's fine for sweet peas and things like that, isn't it? But it, we haven't got it working. I mean, it's taken long enough to get rid of peat from everything. So it's an uphill struggle, but there must be something we can. I mean, I bought some cardboard pots the other day and of course the bottom fell out of them in a minute. So it is a problem. Yeah. And, and I suppose in your work, it's it's a whole different thing to even home gardeners and sort of the retail industry. It's how it's do you, shaming. How do you, <laughs> how do you get all those little nine centimetre pots? How do you transport them to site safely to be able to plant them out on a big project? Yeah. Uh, and then send them back to be reused. It's, it's a huge logistical nightmare, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think we do go back a bit more. But yeah, burning them is just horrible (laughs) oh my goodness (laughs) so Isabel you've told us that your dream garden would be set by a chalk stream with some lovely woodland some elm trees we would have scented plants and shrubs it would have that lovely feeling of maybe falling asleep amongst your plants like those lovely two men in the rondo and the cliffs it might have Fergus Garrett (laughs) as your head gardener but really just we would find you among the borders, working away yourself happily. And there would be a time travel machine that could take <laughs> you back in time to those fabulous places like Ninfa in Giverny to enjoy them in their heyday before the crowds got there. Great. Thank you so much. I love that. I love that. <laughs> and of course, there would be a place to sit and enjoy with friends. There would be um, lots of roses and a greenhouse. If I was to give you one more thing, 
to include in your dream fantasy garden? What's the last thing that you just couldn't live without? Oh, friends and family. <laughs> my children who all love the garden and my husband. Just, you know, lots of jokes and laughing and relaxing in it with friends. That was designer Isabel Bannerman, whose book Husbandry is out now. I'm Stephanie Mann and this is Talking Gardens, brought to you by the team behind Gardens Illustrated magazine. Find us on the newsstand or at gardensillustrated.com and hit follow now to never miss an episode.